Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discussed the legacy of the Chicago 7, learned about the Wide Awakes, and heard new music from one of Chicago's most vital bands. All this plus the Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for August 21st, 2020. Mario Smith spoke with the artist Hank Willis Thomas about his new work and his connection to the Wide Awakes. The Wide Awakes, an abolitionist group dating to the time of Abraham Lincoln, has been revived by Thomas as part of his conceptual art practice. Thomas discusses what it really means to be wide awake today. News from the service entrance airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. Joining us via Skype, American conceptual artist Hank Willis Thomas has been doing work for a while. He is he is Mr. Beautiful. <laughs> he is a great, great cat and, um, and a friend and uh, an ally and a, a comrade and all that stuff. And I'm glad that he took the time out of his busy day. And trust me when I tell you, I know how busy the man's day is. Um, he is here to hang out with us on the show a little bit. What up, Hank? What up, Mario as himself? <laughs> Mr. Beautiful. It's good to hear your voice. Um, I, I, I think... Before we go into wide awake stuff or any of that other stuff, I just want to bring people up to speed about what you've been working on and 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 in the art world and things that you've been doing. I recently saw one of your pieces being erected, I think, in D.C. Yeah, that's um, All Powers to All People, which is a 25-foot Afropic installation uh, that my friend Marsha... Uh, and I have been traveling for several years. Uh, it's pretty epic and incredible. It's now up at the Human Rights Campaign uh, in uh, in D.C. And hopefully we'll be there through, I think, September 3rd. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. what, what is it about art like that? Because I know that started, I think you first unveiled that at Burning Man a few years ago. What is it about... Yeah. Your work has this very unique, in-your-face um, edge to it, and and it, it's thematic in that way. That it's very much bringing it back toward the people. The Nike swoosh, the absolute bottle that was a slave ship, uh, this Afro pick, um, some of the projections and the signs and stuff that you do. Why why choose that path as an artist? I think I may have asked you this years ago, but what, what made you decide that this was going to be the way to direct your your activism, if you will? Uh, well, I didn't know I was being an activist. I still haven't accepted the term. You know, I think maybe an artist and an activist is an artivist, and <laughs> maybe uh, at its best, you know, activist is, is grounded in art and creativity. Activism is grounded in art and creativity. And, you know, at its best, art is grounded in activism and action. Mm-hmm. So I've been trying to, I guess, subconsciously trying to combine both. I see that you, um, you uh, uh, full disclosure, I, uh, Hank Willis Thomas is one of those people that if he calls your house or if he has someone call on his behalf, it's a call you answer. Because so, <laughs> if you don't, answer this man's call. You may not hear from him for several years after the, the, the initial call is made. Uh, but being well, serious. It, it, <laughs> that's because I don't even know where I am half the time. There it is. But, this, but, but being serious, it's a call that you answered. So when you, before COVID, you were starting um, 
or, or considering starting an, a, a, a movement, if you want to use the word movement, called Wide Awakes. Can you talk about the origin of you starting that and why that is important in relation to your your art? Well, I mean, it's important to all of us. Um, it, it's um, I'm here actually at, at uh, Grand Army Plaza where everything is coming together for an event today um, honoring the uh, ratification of the 19th Amendment. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, which is kind of uh, awesome, uh, uh, 1920, 100 years ago. Um, and the Wide Awakes was because I had a credible um, <laughs> community, which includes you, <laughs> of, of people that like are doing critical work of our time and that we are really um, uh, necessary, that we awaken the heroes, the superheroes in each of us and, and band together to um, improve the world as we know it. And so uh, and that requires creative civic action. Do you feel like, because I mean, this is not a, a charge you had to, to take, right? Um, our country, our world is in a really unique place. And it, it, there's a lot of a lot of push and pull. The vibration is real weird in some places. It's not as weird in other places. Um, your your contributions, the contributions of the artists and people that you have assembled um, for this with Wide Awakes, it 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 it, it sound, it, If a person didn't know, it would sound almost like some superhero stuff that you just went and you Professor X this situation where you got all these people together to change the world. But in effect, that's what the idea is, is to change the narrative of this world. Am I, am I too far off? Yeah, I think we have to creatively imagine and as I said, embody the superheroes within us and band together like, yeah, like the Avengers, you know, I might be, I'm playing my, my Nick Fury role. <laughs> the, you know, I'm never really involved in much of the action. <laughs> but I'm really <laughs> excited to see the team working and get well together. And, uh, you know, funny. I'm excited to see what the Wide Awake Chicago do. And can you tell me, I mean, we haven't talked about the history of the Wide Awakes, but I'd love for you to say a few things about um, the story you just learned about the, the 1860 Wide Awake so people might Google it and learn about the history. Well, one of the, one, okay. <laughs> one of the people who works... Uh-huh. Hey man, it, it you know very rarely do the tables get turned on me, but it's you, so I'm not tripping. Um, one of the people who works here at at Lumpen Radio is a descendant of a wide awake, uh, of one of the wide awakes, and uh, from the Lincoln era, from the Civil War era. There's also a group called the Zouaves. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. That is important to to, to that we all need to kind of study up on. They were like the Harlem Globetrotters of militia, from what I was told. But um, this gentleman, this wide awake was from Chicago, and he and Lincoln were were friends. And uh, it, when when I when I mentioned your name about being on the show, Hank, and told him, he immediately was like, "Wait a minute, did you say wide awakes? We just did an event in Springfield, Illinois, a couple of years ago, commemorating the wide awakes and their role in Illinois." So the the wide awakes are th- that's a real thing for people who don't know, and. Um, Again, full disclosure, being a being one of the wide awake Chicago, um, I feel like you do. The narrative needs to change, and I think that 
as a as a person that is an artist and a person that does have this platform on the radio and just being a citizen of the planet and seeing how people who look like me get wronged regularly i'm i'm rather tired of that i would like to see us we're here for a limited time our run is not extended right while we're here we should be great and we should be able to live that way and i i when the call was made for me to be a part of this i did not hesitate to say yes and uh i i i've just i'm glad that there are people like you in the world and um i'm supposed to be interviewing you not talking about you mr Simon. no you and i are the same so thank you i mean when you jumped in, all the, the, the everything became real. Now we have what wide awake and and uh, in Australia and you know in what Cuba and and the, and the community is growing, and uh, it's really really exciting. So thank you. I would love also to meet your your colleague. I, I I learned about the event they did in Springfield, and that's what kind of is inspiring a lot of the work that we're doing now, as far as what we're doing outside with creative civic action and bring recognizing that what happened. Uh, in 1860, when a bunch of abolitionists came together for the collective cause of making America great, <laughs> um, <laughs> it really does echo this time. And, and you know, a lot of us have been hiding in plain sight. And uh, and I hope that we can emerge together. So I'd love to meet that person. Absolutely, we can make that happen. We get all power to the people in Chicago. You you got to come here to for, for yeah. the unveiling. And you haven't been there in a while. And that's another thing. I, I know you I can't see it. When was the last time you were in town? Oh, last time I was in town was in January. Oh, okay. You know, I had we had the gun violence memorial at the at the cultural council. That's uh, right. Uh, yeah. Down and I and I missed center. my I missed my chance to hang out with you. Every time I see you, it's it's a very special moment when when a Hank Willis Thomas comes to Chicago. <laughs> well, so I, now we get to see you more regularly because of this project. So thank you. Yeah. What what new um. What new paths are you are you charting in the art world at the, uh, these days? I know that you have existing projects, but what's what's going on in your mind right now that you're thinking I'm getting ready to create this, or have you already created it? Well, we're creating it together. I think the reason I'm so excited about Four Freedoms, my collaboration, forfreedoms.org, uh, or at Four Freedoms on Instagram, and then at Wide Awakes 2020, um, is because I, I, what creation means to me in a time when we all need to work together is actually getting over myself and, and, and recognizing the me that exists in other people and the other people and how so many other people have been working and inspiring me and collaborating with me, even if I wasn't even fully aware. So, um, mm. I don't know what comes after that. I do have an exhibition in Hong Kong called don't let money change you about, you know, money, 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 <laughs> um, and, you know, at this time of, you know, change around the economy etc in hong kong i have mm -hmm. a show my, my my show um all things being equal which is a survey of all my work opens at the um, cincinnati art museum in september um and you know it's there's just so much out there to learn and grow from i'm also doing a collaboration with a japanese high-end fashion brand called um, mm. sakai and then we also just launched um, on. If you go to drywall.com, you'll see uh, we launched a merchandise uh, for a lot of my work, um, so that people can represent um, there.
I-94 chatted with Lee Weiner, author of Conspiracy to Riot, out now from Belt Publishing. Weiner discussed the surreal trial 50 years on, his experiences in politics after the 1960s, and how his son had followed in his footsteps with the protests now roiling America. I-94, Lumpin's Books and Literature Show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. The trial of the Chicago 7, or the Chicago 8 Conspiracy, wasn't anywhere near the first time the government had to use its prosecutors and courts to punish political dissent on the left. The mobilization of local and federal authorities, state-sanctioned violence, police, laws, and the formal and time-consuming procedures of the court were all weapons that had regularly been used to threaten, attack, and coerce individuals and organizations who opposed existing arrangements of government and economic power. But our trial caused a bigger stir than most. In part, that might have been an accident of timing and the misplaced enthusiasm of newly elected Republicans who were determined to act as quickly as they could against their perceived enemies. So the trial was rushed into being, and it ended up almost perfectly placed in the middle of a rapidly growing, near-cresting wave of distrust towards the government, public anger about the continuing war, and broadly felt, if not clearly articulated, yearning for something better. It was all very much a part of the 60s, which was a time that's hard to describe, even for people who lived through them. No single book, article, blog post, or even hours of music, video, and interviews have been able to adequately sum up the 60s. They can't. For example, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's 10-part TV series on the Vietnam War was 18 hours long, and it still generated plenty of legitimate criticism about what was missed and what was glossed over, and that film was just about the war. Vietnam was certainly a significant part of the context surrounding all our lives, but it wasn't everything, not everything by quite a bit. The failure to satisfactorily grab an intellectual and emotional hold of the 60s can partly be blamed on the simple fact that there was so much going on. If you Google the 60s, you get more than 96 million hits. Do the same for the 70s and 80s and you get 49 million and 44 million respectively. And when people say the 60s, it's not always even clear what years they're actually referring to. Did the 60s start with Kennedy's election in 1960? Maybe with the Greensboro sit-ins that started much earlier that same year. The Montgomery bus boycott began in 1955. Surely that was the start of something. In his book on the 60s, Tom Brokaw claims they start with the 1963 March on Washington and Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. But then when did the 60s end? Was it 1970 when National Guard troops killed students at Kent State University and then 10 days later, Mississippi police officers killed students at Jackson State? Or maybe the 60s ended with the 1972 electoral defeat of McGovern and Nixon's re-election. I don't really think the exact date parameters are important. After all, they were part of what hints at what was to come before the actual year of 1960 even got started. And the whirlwind of change and noise from those years didn't fully settle down even after Nixon made his getaway from the Watergate mess by boarding a helicopter on the White House lawn in 1974, a forced smile on his face and his arms raised high with a two-handed B sign. To understand that time, and especially its continuing impact on politics in America today, I think you have to start with the children who grew up in the 50s, children who heard family stories that often made them unintentional heirs of some of the remnants of the radical politics of the 30s and 40s. Red Diaper Babies was the derogatory, dismissive, and sometimes fearsome label that some observers used to describe these children. But as my own story suggests, it was much broader than that. Many more people, besides just the kids of actual Communist Party members, learned from their families that politics was a separate but real thing, and that it had once and might again influence people's lives. We were all living in places that were richer and that seemed freer. 
is a world filled with more cars, TVs, and opportunities to learn and try new things without necessarily terrible consequences. And we are back here at I-94. We are speaking with the author Lee Weiner, the author of Conspiracy to Riot, The Life and Times of One of the Chicago Seven. He was a defendant of the Chicago Seven. And just uh, before the break, and in fact that reading is from Chapter 6 of Lee's book, uh, we were talking about the case of Bobby Seale. He, of course, was taken to Connecticut where he faces charges of, of murder. But you guys then were reduced to the, the, the famous Chicago 7, as we were kind of talking about before the break. Um, you guys were not playing along with what seemed to be an establish, establishment narrative. Uh, I, I think you make it very clear in your book that you felt that you were being put on trial um, to stand in for a bunch of people that the government considered... Uh, to be a threat to their power. Uh, and it's very interesting, you know, we're 50 years on from 1968. Uh, the Democratic Convention obviously is happening as we tape this show. It will be continuing, in fact, when this show first airs. Uh, and we are in a very similar uh, time period, again, perhaps without an international war in Indochina. But uh, there is a huge protest movement going on right now in America. Uh, there is a great deal of, of uh, anger uh, toward the federal government. Can you talk about maybe some of the parallels you see between your time, what you lived through back then, and, and what's going on now? Sure. Okay. First, I'll start with a charming story. I got a chance to talk to one of my sons. We compared. He's in, he lives in Portland, and we were able to make talk comparisons between the gas that I got hit, we got hit with in Chicago in 68 and the gas they're using in Portland now. <laughs> so it's kind of like... Uh, which one was Spain. worse? Yeah, which one was worse? <laughs> Portland, I think. Um, it, the stuff they're using in Portland um, it is not easy. It, it, it dries on you. Um, and so it's, a, it's different. Um, at least, you know, I haven't been in Portland. I had my my I had to depend on my kid, um, and you know, I, I believe I proudly proclaim that. Yeah, yeah, but you're no, that that's that gas. Mine was really gas. I mean, uh, the government, the public use of state power to repress and punish people who dissent, people who want something better people who are opposed to the continuation of racism, who think that societal denigration of gender roles, expect gender roles, people who support um, a capitalist economy that rewards wealth and protects the re retention of that wealth, um, people who want something better, who want something different, um, are going to have to become active. They have to learn to be political. And very, very happily, with great joy, I see people who are learning to be political much faster than my friends and I did. For us, it took, it took a while. But now the images of hurt and 
killings of innocent adults and children um, are, are, are viewable, seeable, unavoidable. And so people have learned that that's politics, that, that, that acting politically is the only way you're going to be able to make some changes in that, in that ugliness and end some of that hurt. We're talking about uh, parallels, things that have, have changed in the protest movement, things that haven't. There's a moment in um, in the book where you, you're talking about being on trial, and you, everyone, I think, except Bobby, was was out on bond during yes. the trial. Yeah. For most, for most of it, not for, all, all of it. Right, toward the end, some someone else was went in. I forget who, but uh, you were you were making speeches. Uh, most of all, you were making speeches all the time, all around the country. All the time, and everywhere. You had an opportunity to speak to uh, to an LGBTQ crowd about the similarities between the civil rights struggle and and their struggle. I was, and I, and I yeah. remember Tom Tom Hayden opposed it. Well, okay, so here's here's what happened. So like, Stonewall. well, be before you get into it, Lee. Um, at the end of it, can you can you talk about if there's still that same um, disparity between movements today? Yeah, okay, I will. Um, okay, so look, um, Stonewall happened in '69 uh, before the trial started, and several gay friends of mine asked whether I would speak at a rally uh, that they were organizing in Chicago and talk about the similarities between their struggle and everything else that the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement was all about. And of course I, I, of course I said, sure. Um, Tom, this is right before the trial started, it was 1969, and not everybody recognized Stonewall as the political act that it was. Um, Tom, people did not understand, I, I want to just knock Tom, he's not alone in this, um, didn't understand that the languages we used, the words we used, condemning um, the world as it existed, and its expectations uh, would be broadened. Originally, those words were designed to reach university students and members of the black community. But there were other people whose senses of identity were core to who they were, and they shared those identities. Sometimes it was, it was gender, sometimes it was sexual orientation. Um, so that in those days, there was not a lot of, there was resistance to um, granting the, um, the glory of being a legitimate political uh, movement for progressive change. Um, Lee, did Stonewall, I mean, I was too young to really remember that Stonewall happened, you know, and I was a little kid. Did that make national news and, and were people yes. talking about that? Okay. Yes, yes. It, yes, it did. And yes, it, yes, they did. <laughs> Look, it was, it was fantastic. Um, I mean, it was, it was just, when I, in those days, leading up, leading up to the trial, um, 
things sometimes got really, really unpleasant. Um, you meet with lawyers, talk constantly about all this crap. Um, and one of the refuges I had was a gay collective um, uh, off of Lincoln Park. Um, so that um, those men were welcoming, supportive, and friends. And their struggle was, I saw it, their struggle is no different than the, in the black community that I worked as an organizer. They were fighting uh, against uh, repression, um, a lack of dignity, a lack of recognition for who they were, and an active efforts by the society to denigrate them and keep them down. Same thing, do racism. You, do you think Tom saw it as an insult to the civil rights movement in that uh, the community didn't face the, the historic struggle that African Americans had? I think that's how Tom felt then. Um, Tom had worked in the South and had had and kept the civil rights movement as a very very shiny and important object in his life, and so I think that he, at those days, he was reluctant to accede the equal legitimacy to the LGBTQ movement. But you know, he learned as many other people did. Whoa, traffic's backed up all the way down Morgan, and I see why. Uh, looks like your buddy is at it again. Don't call him my buddy. Kyle, what are you doing? Jess, you're just in time. Let's do a new episode about this. About you washing cars? Well, this is the Seisman Sudski Festival, a semi-annual Bridgeport quasi-celebrity car wash and laundry. I do it every... Oh, uh, hold up. Car wash and laundry? Yes, exactly. People bring their dirty clothes to me, I soap them up, and I wash their car with them. I got all the neighborhood heroes involved. Uh, over there is a guy who played uh, music on John Daly's show once. How do you do? Go away. And, of course, we got Steve from Bernice's. Hi, Jess. Oh, hey, Steve. Oh, well, this seems weirdly pragmatic for you, Kyle. Yes, I know. And just for a few bucks, all Bridgeporters can come to the GoPro Alley for a car and laundry wash. It's like the only time I ever clean anything. Impressive crowd you got here. Man, I've been doing this for years. Where does the other end of that hose go? Oh, I just ran it through the mail slot up to Eric's place. <laughs> he never notices, but it's on the DL, so. Actually, here, hold the, hold the hose for a minute. I gotta do this. Oh. oh my god. For the listeners, I should explain. Please don't. Kyle, are you wearing a bikini? Are you wearing my bikini? Hey, I found it on the floor fair and square. Whose floor? Jamie's. I live there too. That's also my floor. Yeah, but you rent. You don't own it. So like, you know, whatever, right? Not a thing. I definitely don't want that back. And now what my audience has been waiting for. That's more technically impressive than I would have thought possible. I have to say, everyone's mesmerized by... Is that my blouse? I wonder. 
Are you washing that car with my clothes? Hey, don't blame me. Jamie said he didn't want the car wash. He just wanted the laundry dead. Oh, here comes the meltdown. Jamie, I answer the phone. Jamie, I cannot believe you let Kyle wash the car with my clothes. They ain't clothes, the laundry. Gotta go. This week on the Trump Diaries, a Republican report from the Senate says, yes, Trump colluded with Russia. The post office comes under siege. Joe Biden accepts the nomination as Trump melts down. Thousands continue to die from COVID-19. Trump wants a third term, and officials detail Trump's attempts to sink blue states. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1303, August 14th. The pandemic continues unabated. The United States is now seeing 1,500 deaths a day from COVID-19, the highest since mid-May. Nearly 200,000 Americans have now died from COVID-19. Predictably, Trump urged Americans to, quote, open up our schools and open up our businesses. Describing himself as quite exhausted, Dr. Anthony Fauci said the fact that states are handling the pandemic piecemeal is keeping the U.S. from bringing it under control once and for all. To end the pandemic, he said Americans will have to pull together by wearing masks, washing their hands, and avoiding crowds. His message was echoed by the head of the CDC and by Joe Biden, who called for a national mask order. The director of the CDC also warned that the U.S. could have the worst fall from a public health perspective that we've ever had if Americans don't follow CDC guidelines. Dr. Robert Redfield added, quote, I'm not asking some of America to do it. We all got to do it. In a related story, the Senate has adjourned through Labor Day with talks in a coronavirus relief bill going nowhere. The White House and top Democrats are trillions of dollars apart and talks collapsed last week. White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow also said Trump opposes the, quote, voting rights plans in the next relief bill. Kudlow labeled a plan to give states $3.6 billion to promote election security and mail-in voting during the once-in-a-lifetime pandemic, quote, a really liberal left wish list item. In a major surprise, Israel struck a diplomatic agreement with the United Arab Emirates to establish full normalization of relations. Israel said it would pause its annexation of occupied West Bank territory in order to focus on improving its ties with the rest of the Arab world. Trump took credit for brokering a deal that would lead to Israel and the Emirates signing a string of bilateral agreements. That agreement would make the Emirates just the third Arab country to establish normal diplomatic relations with Israel. Trump said he would veto funding for the post office, so in his words, quote, Democrats can't have universal mail-in voting during the pandemic. Trump said he would not approve $25 billion in emergency funding for the post office or $3.5 billion in supplemental funding for election resources. Trump has repeatedly claimed that mail-in voting is fraudulent. Also, a federal judge in Pennsylvania told the Trump campaign and the Republican Party in that state that they must produce evidence of vote-by-mail fraud in the state by Friday. In a related story, the Supreme Court rejected an emergency request by the Republican National Committee and Rhode Island's Republican Party to block state voters from casting mail-in ballots without in-person witness verification. Rhode Island law requires voters mailing their ballots to sign them in front of two witnesses or a notary. Governor Gina Raimondo suspended that requirement because of the pandemic. And in a major escalation of Trump's attempt to gut affirmative action at elite universities, the Justice Department has accused Yale of discriminating against Asian American and white applicants. The Justice Department ordered Yale to suspend the use of race or national origin in its admissions process for one year and said Yale would then need to seek preclearance. Yale says it will not comply. 
It is the second time the Trump administration has accused an Ivy League school. It sued Harvard in 2018. Harvard's admission system was subsequently upheld in the courts. Day 1304, August 15th. The troubles at the American Post Office now dominate national news. Trump is trying to throw sand in the gears there, claiming mail-in voting is somehow fraudulent. And Louis DeJoy, his new Postmaster General, has now been ordered to testify before an emergency House Oversight Committee hearing on the 24th of August. Newly obtained financial disclosures show DeJoy holds at least $30 million in a company known as XPO Holdings, a transportation and logistics company that does business with the Post Office. Also on the same day in June that DeJoy divested large amounts of Amazon shares, he purchased stock options, giving him the right to buy new shares of Amazon at a price much lower than their current market price. Also, the Postal Service warned 46 states and D.C. it cannot guarantee all ballots cast by mail for the November election will arrive in time. States, including the key battlegrounds of Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Florida, were warned that their long-standing deadlines for requesting returning and counting ballots are now, quote, incongruous with mail service. DeJoy also has yet to meet with state election officials of a partisan group requested a meeting back in May. DeJoy has proposed removing 20% of letter sorting machines. Meanwhile, a grievance filed by the American Postal Workers Union says the post office is decommissioning 10% of its mail sorting machines, which have the capacity to collectively sort 21.4 million pieces of paper mail an hour. Also in Oregon and in Michigan, blue collection boxes are being removed. The GAO has ruled that Trump's two top officials at the Department of Homeland Security are serving in their positions illegally. The independent watchdog agency reported to Congress that Chad Wolf and his deputy Kenneth Cuccinelli are serving under an invalid order of succession under the Vacancies Reform Act. After the resignation of Secretary Kirsten Nielsen, Kevin McNeilan took over and altered the order of succession for other officials to succeed him after his departure. And Trump claimed that Kamala Harris is not eligible to be vice president because her parents were immigrants. This is false, and Harris was born in California. Trump said, quote, I heard it today. She doesn't meet the requirements. I have no idea if that's right. Trump, of course, formally claimed that President Barack Obama was born outside the United States in a birther conspiracy. Day 1305, August 16th. Miles Taylor, the former chief of staff to the Secretary of Homeland Security, Kirsten Nielsen, became the highest ranking former Trump employee to call for his removal. Calling him dangerous, Taylor said in 2019, Trump sought to cut off emergency relief to California during a series of wildfires because it was a blue state. Taylor alleges that Trump asked for funding to be pulled from FEMA because, quote, he was so rageful that people in the state of California wouldn't support him. Taylor also claims Trump tried to reinstate the practice of separating children from their families at the border and that he became, quote, visibly furious when Nielsen refused to do so because it was illegal. Trump said he would deliver his Republican National Convention speech from the White House lawn, quote, because it's a great place. It's a place that makes me feel good. It makes the country feel good. And it's a very big, a very big lawn. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called the decision very wrong and said the idea that Trump plans to, quote, degrade once again the White House, as he has done over and over again, by saying he's going to completely politicize it, is something that should be rejected out of hand. Trump continued to attack the post office, declaring the agency, quote, has been failing for many decades and asserting that Democrats don't have a clue. 
Trump believes erroneously that the post office subsidizes Amazon. Allies also apparently coddled Trump in 2016 by telling him the reason he lost the popular vote to Hillary Clinton was widespread mail-in balloting fraud, which is false. And a White House correspondent asked Trump, quote, do you regret all the lying you've done to the American people? Trump responded with, what, all the what? before calling on another journalist. Trump, of course, has lied at least 20,000 times by account kept by the Washington Post. Day 1306, August 17th. Stunned by a widespread public backlash over mail delays, the post office suddenly reversed course, holding a planned removal of mailboxes and mail sorting machines, according to Postmaster General Louis DeJoy. DeJoy will now testify next Monday before Congress. Also, Nancy Pelosi recalled the House from summer recess to vote on legislation to block those changes at the Postal Service. The House was not scheduled to return until September 14th. It will now vote Saturday on a $25 billion bill to fund the Postal Service and, quote, prohibit the Postal Service from dialing back levels of service it had in place on June 1st until the pandemic ends. The pandemic continues to rage in the United States, though we are now finally seeing some dips in the South and West. By official counts, we have passed 5.5 million cases, the most on the planet. And Trump suggested the FDA should approve another untested experimental coronavirus treatment. An experimental botanical extract, oleandrin, which is from the oleander, has never been tested in animals or humans for its efficacy against COVID-19. Trump, however, said the extract should be marketed as a dietary supplement or approved as a drug to cure COVID-19. Alandrin was promoted to Trump during an Oval Office meeting by MyPillow.com CEO Mike Lindell. Trump also owns a financial stake in the company that makes the extract. Trump approved an oil leasing program to open the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to drilling. The move will auction off oil and gas rights in the 1.6 million acre coastal wilderness. The refuge is one of the last large unspoiled tracts. That move is also facing bitter lawsuits. The Democratic National Convention kicked off in Milwaukee, but with few in attendance. The convention is largely virtual this year. Democrats are trying to present a unified front with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, named as their best chance to end Trump's reign. The convention will be beamed from multiple locations. Biden will accept the nomination on Thursday. And Trump said he'd like to meet with Vladimir Putin before the November election. Administration officials are considering a possible meeting next month in New York. The aim of a summit would be to announce progress to a new nuclear arms control agreement. Trump and his team also plan to have him hold more meetings with world leaders in the weeks leading up to the election. And Trump's younger brother died. Robert Trump was 71. Trump said he may hold a memorial service for Robert at the White House this week. In a statement, Trump called Robert, quote, not just my brother, he was my best friend. Day 1307, August 18th. A massive report from a Republican-controlled Senate panel laid out an extensive web of contacts between Trump and Russian government officials confirming that Russia interfered in the 2016 election to aid Trump. The report by the Senate Intelligence Committee says boldly that Russia tried to sabotage the American election and elect Trump, and that some members in Trump's inner circle were open and accepting of their help. In new details, Trump's team also gave polling information to a Russian intelligence agent who later oversaw major election interference by the former KGB. In a related story, Michael Cohen's book will allege that Trump worked with Russia to win the election. Trump claims that Trump worked to get close to Putin and quote his coterie of corrupt billionaire oligarchs and that Trump lied when he told the American public he had no dealings in Russia. 
Trump said he plans to seek a third term, quote, because they spied on my campaign. Trump's false claim that Obama illegally spied on his campaign has been refuted by Trump's own FBI. Trump made the claim again during a rally in Wisconsin. Quote, we're going to win four more years, and after that we'll go for another four years because they spied on my campaign. We should get a redo of four years. Facing withering pressure, the Postmaster General announced he would suspend cost-cutting initiatives at the Postal Service until after the election. That announcement came as 21 states said they were suing Trump over election year changes at the Postal Service. Nancy Pelosi said the changes made by Detroit were not satisfactory and her caucus would pass a bill aimed at maintaining pre-pandemic funding levels. On the anniversary of the 19th Amendment, Trump pardoned Susan B. Anthony. His announcement at a press conference was greeted by audible laughter. Anthony was arrested in 1872 for voting when laws prohibited women from doing so. The pardon was attended by hard-right members of the anti-abortion Susan B. Anthony list, which is unrelated to the suffragette. The Susan B. Anthony Museum publicly rejected Trump's pardon. Wearing a necklace that read, Vote, Michelle Obama delivered a keynote speech at the Democratic National Convention, saying of Trump, quote, he has had more than enough time to prove that he can do the job, but he is clearly in over his head. He cannot meet this moment, she said, before invoking Trump's response when asked about lives lost from coronavirus, quote, it is what it is. And Trump retweeted known Russian propaganda about Joe Biden. The tweet contained audio tapes of a 2016 conversation between Biden and then Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko. There is no proof of wrongdoing on the tapes. However, Kremlin-controlled media outlets have used the tapes to stow conspiracy theories about Biden's dealings with Ukraine. The U.S. intelligence community says it is part of Moscow's ongoing effort to, quote, denigrate Biden ahead of the election. Day 1308, August 19th. Previously unknown, the Senate Intelligence Committee made criminal referrals of Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Stephen Bannon to federal prosecutors in 2019. The referrals said the men misled the committee during their testimony. The committee also made criminal referrals of Blackwater founder Eric Prince and Shyam Clovis, a former Trump campaign co-chair. Attorneys for Trump Jr., Kushner, Bannon, Davis, and Clovis have denied their clients misled the committee. Also. Trump knew of and discussed stolen Democratic emails at critical points late in the 2016 campaign. The new Senate report made clear that WikiLeaks at least very likely knew those emails were coming from Russian intelligence. Trump advisor Roger Stone also knew about the most critical WikiLeaks release before it happened, and despite denials, Trump discussed that with Stone. A federal judge blocked Trump's rollback of anti-discrimination protections for transgender patients. She cited the recent Supreme Court decision awarding workplace discrimination protections for lesbian and gay employees. Trump said he would consider the Democrats' plan to spend $25 billion on the U.S. Postal Service as long as lawmakers include coronavirus relief payments and additional funding for small businesses. That statement was bizarre as Democrats passed a $3.2 trillion bill three months ago, including all of that. Press Secretary Kayla McEnke said Trump would not accept election results. Quote, the president has always said he'll see what happens and make a determination in the aftermath. Trump will closely examine the election results to determine if they were subject to fraud. McEnke also echoed Trump's call for a boycott of Goodyear tires. Trump had tweeted, quote, don't buy Goodyear tires. They announced a ban on MAGA hats. Get better tires for far less. In fact, Goodyear bans the on-the-job wearing of any political attire. 
McKenney then described Blue Lives Matter, a pro-police response to the Black Lives Matter movement, as, quote, an equity issue. When a reporter pushed back, noting that Goodyear's definition of political apparel is common across many American companies, McKenney equated the Blue Lives Matter movement to, quote, make America great again. Quote, MAGA is pretty much synonymous with Blue Lives Matter these days. Day 1309, August 20th. Former senior Trump advisor Stephen Bannon was arrested this morning and charged with attempting to defraud hundreds of thousands of donors in connection with an online crowdfunding scheme. The campaign known as, quote, We Build the Wall raised more than $25 million, according to prosecutors from the Southern District of New York. Quote, the defendants defrauded hundreds of thousands of donors, capitalizing on their interest in funding a border wall to raise millions of dollars under the false pretense that all of that money would be spent on construction. Nancy Pelosi essentially called Postmaster General Lewis DeJoy a liar, alleging he made misleading statements to the public. Pelosi said that, in fact, changes were not being rolled back. The Postmaster General frankly admitted he had no intention of replacing sorting machines, blue mailboxes, and other key mail infrastructure that have been removed, and that plans for adequate overtime, which is critical for the timely delivery of mail, are not in the works. DeJoy has been heavily criticized for perceived interference in the post office's ability to handle election mail during the pandemic. Trump's re-election campaign also sued the state of New Jersey over the decision to mail a ballot to all residents. Governor Phil Murphy responded to the suit saying, quote, the president's campaign is putting itself on record as wanting to delegitimize our November election instead of working with us to ensure that voters' rights are upheld. Trump's campaign also sued three Iowa counties over absentee ballot mailings. Trump and his wife Melania, by the way, requested an absentee ballot from Florida yesterday. In a highly unusual and partisan attack, former President Barack Obama laid into Trump at the Democratic National Convention on Wednesday night, saying he had failed to take the presidency seriously and condemned tens of thousands of people to die. Quote, Trump hasn't grown into the job because he can't. The consequences of that failure are severe. 170,000 Americans dead, millions of jobs gone. The 19-minute speech sent Trump into a rage on Twitter. He tweeted in all caps throughout the speech, making debunk claims about spying and other stuff as well. Joe Biden is to accept the Democratic nomination officially tonight. National polls say that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris lead Trump and Pence 53% to 41% among registered voters. Among voters who say they're absolutely certain to vote, Biden and Harris lead 54% to 43%. Voters who did not vote in 2016, of them, 57% say they will absolutely vote in 2020. 60% of Americans, including 87% of Democrats and nearly 40% of Republicans, consider the selection of Harris for vice president to be a major milestone. 7 in 10 Americans say they're embarrassed by the American response to coronavirus, but 35% say they won't get vaccinated once a vaccine becomes available. These are the Trump Diaries. Studio A reopened this week. Please enjoy this track from Fax, who performed live for us this week. This is Antibody. It was engineered and mastered by Ari Shellist and Neil Gaynor, with special thanks to Nick Wiley and Annie Klein.
As always, I'd like to close off my This Week in Eureka content and moments with uh, a little bit of a, a happier, uh, a fun, sort of funny story. Uh, recently, the Indian Astronomical Society um, found out, and, and this is a very interesting story, um, that the sun, using astronomical data, our sun, the body of radiant light that we all know and love, um, would in fact, although it's bright, although it provides most to all of the power, um, you know, all of the energy uh, over the course of the of the Earth's history, um, it would in fact lose a chess match to the nearest other star in the galaxy, Alpha Centauri, that star system. Well, right away, right away, I have a lot of issues with this. Um, this is not fun for me at all to hear. This is the sun is. A holy entity. It basks us in its radiance. It provides everything mm. for us. If it played chess, and I have no doubt that it could if it set its mind to it, it would absolutely wallop any other star, planet, black hole even in the universe. I I have many issues with this. What is the basis for this 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 slander? Not according to 
I hear you, Rowan, but not according to these scientists. And, and these are scientists. Astronomers and astrologers have been using uh, this chess index to map out the pseudo-astroneural complexity of certain star systems for, for decades now. I mean, it's typically what, we, what they've used this on is uh, star systems by mapping star systems and galaxies onto sort of neural networks and determining from that regard who would win in a chess match. Um, but they've more recently been focusing on single stars as systems themselves. And uh, what they've done is they've looked at uh, things like amounts uh, of, of certain elements in stars, positions of stars, length of flares and magnetic fields, range of photonic radiation that it, that's given off by the star, the gravity per charge, the kinetic energy, planetary resources available to that star placement galaxy. Just really a lot of complex stuff that they've boiled down and been able to graft a neurological network onto it um, and be able to, from that neurological network, uh, predict uh, sort of the, um, the amount of... Uh, the amount of uh, the, the amount of anticipated moves that this star or star system would be able to make, and I mean in every every regard, even in the primest days, in the heaviest, hardest, most bright days of our sun, um, Alpha Centauri would absolutely pwn it in a game of chess. Broadcast every Sunday eight to nine p.m. The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.